Hello, my name is Michael Stevens, and this is episode two of Self Inquiry, a podcast by We Create Space, the wellbeing and empowerment platform for the queer community, supporting LGBTQ individuals with defining their own personal growth strategy and self identifying how to maximize their own unique potential. This is a podcast exploring the extraordinary life journeys of inspiring queer individuals. It's about resilience, awareness, and growth. We'll be covering topics such as identity, sex, relationships, purpose, health, and of course, love. Some of these short but powerful conversations are taken from our online self-care programs, which are free to attend and available to anyone who wants to explore in a safe space alongside a team of LGBTQ mentors, creatives, coaches, and wellbeing professionals. So this first conversation is between CreateSpace team members Rico Jacob Chase and Dr. Paul Taylor-Pitt. Paul is an award-winning organisational development specialist, mentor, coach and facilitator with three decades of professional experience to draw from. Rico is a videographer, writer and vocal activist fighting avidly for the rights of LGBTQIA and black people. As a board member of Transactual UK, he strives to change UK legislation for non-binary equality. He often speaks about the complexities of sexuality, gender and racial perceptions. To give a bit of context, the dialogues taken from the workshop Be The Change, Rico opens up about his own personal transformation journey as a trans man and the internal process that he had to go through leading up to making that major shift in identity that's changed the way he lives his entire life. Hi Rico. Hey, thanks for having me. Hello, you're so welcome. Um, we've got some time in our uh, agenda today to hear from Rico about his story. And we really want to give you a chance to, again, kind of listen like angels. Um, it's also a bit of time where you can just sit back, relax. We're not going to be asking you to do anything in this space. Uh, but we just want you to hear Rico, to really attend to his story and think about how some of the concepts that we've come up with might help uh, you integrate your change. So Rico, I'm going to start just by asking you, uh, tell us about you. Who are you? Where are you from? Yeah, sure. Um, so Rico Jacob Chase, uh, he, him. Um, I'm from South London. Uh, I live like in Purley. It's just near Croydon. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Where am I from? Yeah. Uh, my ancestors are Jamaican. So my um, three generation removed Jamaican heritage. Um, yeah. And how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm a bit sleepy though. I I, I don't know. I um I didn't sleep well last night. I was just talking to my mates, you know, usual Friday night watching Pulp Fiction. <laughs> my eyes are a bit swollen, but I'm good. I'm in, I'm in a good mood. Yeah. Okay. How has the last couple of hours been for you? Um, quite reflective. I think I've been meditating for about two years now, and I think that um. I I knew some of the techniques, I've experienced some of them, um, but it's always nice to have like a refresh or someone to, uh, someone to actually explain it or go through the history of it or some of the books, because when you encounter meditation, it's very, um, uh, I'm, I'm quite a serious and practical person. That's just who I am. I'm a very I'm like a realist and if I can see it, I can't touch it, it doesn't exist. So um, meditation for me, was like an interesting um, addition to my life, necessary addition to my life. 
Mm. Um, so a bit about me, I used to work in finance and trading floors. I was there. For, uh, I worked in finance for about four year time period. Um, I heard of um, anxiety and depression, but like most people, um, you, you sort of just get taught just to get on with it, you know, you know toughen up. Uh, that's kind of the way that I just approach mental health. Um, lo and behold, I probably was depressed for the majority of the time I was in the city because it's very, very um, lack of sunlight, cutthroat environment. It's not really a place of warmth or friendship. And I'm actually quite a bubbly, warm person, but you can't really be that individual. You're not having to suppress the things that make you human. Um, I worked in finance where I was um, very, uh, they were very, very comfortable with my, I'm a trans guy. So I used to come to work slightly more feminine at the time. This is probably about four years ago. Um, and uh, I was come to work sometimes feminine, sometimes more masculine. And my colleagues used to just like lightly tease me about it. It's like, oh, um, which is it masculine feminine today? Um, my, my given name's Rianne. Masculine feminine today, Rianne? I'm like, I did it. So I come in like on heels and handbag, tottering one day and sit down. Next time, slumped down in my, um, my polar neck, <laughs> arms crossed and legs like spread. Uh, so gender presentation for me was very, very fluid. Um, and I was in the hedge fund. And as long as you got your job done, they generally did not care who you were. I moved to a more Christian company where they had very, very stylized ideologies about what gender presentations would be, who they wanted you to um, pre present as. You know, if you look at sort of a Christmas card where you have those a mother and um, father and then the two kids and then they're sitting there, it's the 1950s. That was their idea of what the office should look like. And then there was me. <laughs> One of the few black people there, my massive afro. Um, uh, I just, I was just so used to just being myself that I hadn't thought about how not being myself would influence others. Anyway, um, I, at the time, was stressed. I had a lot on. I was working crazy hours and I was studying at the same time. So trigger-wise, um, I wasn't really eating that well. When I get depressed, I don't really eat that well. It, it's a really bad idea. It ends up depleting your body. You're not really functioning as much. I was spending most of my Saturdays sleeping, just like red flagged when it comes to depression. Um, um, I wasn't really, I found it hard to talk to people. I wasn't really talking about my emotions, what I was feeling, and I was shutting people out. So I was incredibly isolated um, and then I had a breakup with my girlfriend at the time and it was like everything in my life was slowly falling apart and the, yeah. uh, the more I tried to grip onto things to make it control things and make it work the more it just blew up in my face yeah. uh and so I went into depression but I couldn't leave the office because um some of my colleagues decided to take a very very long sabbatical so yeah. I had to stay in the office and go for depression in the office and um, the way that the company works was a very, very, they described themselves as a cult in hindsight. This, you could have seen this coming. Yeah. Okay. yeah, they're like, okay, we're like a big happy family and we are like a cult, but not like the cults you know. I was just like, what does that mean? Uh, just mm. fine, take my paycheck, let's go. <laughs> like, be careful with your environment, be careful who you work with. Um, and I didn't fit into what the head of the cult wanted the cult to look like. So um, mm. they side, so like me. So apparently his, his email memo went out, if, if um, Rianne annoys you, we're not annoying Rianne back. That was the official thing. My wow. boss told me in my review that um, everyone, I worked very, very hard, that had my work, but they didn't like me as a person. I was just like, ah, that's not what you hired me for. Anyway, yeah. kind of very long story short, at the end of two months, apologies, I've triggered anyone. 
are at people laughing at me, swearing at me, jeering at me. My hands would shake whilst I was working. And the aim was they couldn't fire me because I was good at my job. So they had to get me to be to make a mistake so they could fire mm. me. So um, I ended up with post-traumatic stress disorder. So post-traumatic stress disorder is one. I was okay. I talk about this on panels all the time, man. I'm good. I'm good. I'll recover, man. I just tell people these stories so they can understand how bad it can get and how you can recover from it. So don't feel sorry for me. Just understand that, um, that no matter how bad your mental health can be, yeah. you can always recover from it using some of the techniques that you've kind of uncovered in this, um, in the seminar. So, um, I was in a situation where, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is when you, um, you, uh, your animalistic part of your brain. So the way that your brain is created is that you have the original, the animalistic part, and then the modern part of your brain, the newer part that's grown up on the back of it. So then when someone jumps at you, you go, ah, mm -hmm. it's kind of useful when yeah, there's like lions and tigers and you need to run away from mm -hmm. the <laughs> saber tooth tiger, but in the modern day world, it's really bloody irritating. So yeah. the way that my PTSD works is that if someone in my periphery movement, any periphery movement triggers, I have a panic attack. Well, the panic attacks I would have were the debilitating type. Like I couldn't read and write in public. People couldn't touch me for about eight months. So it took me about two and a half years to recover from PTSD. Mm. I went from working on a trading floor to being a bartender because I couldn't read and write. Just mm. entirely different worlds. Now I'm a director at Transactional UK. I do a lot of public speaking. Uh, I can read and write again, which is quite cool. Um, <laughs> uh, wait, <laughs> just hands. Um, uh, so I'm back to where I was, if not slightly stronger. I still yeah. have a very, very slight amount of triggers and PTSD. But the thing that really, really helped me is that in the first nine months of having PTSD, I refused to get treatment out of pride. I was just like, mm -hmm. it'll go away. Wish it away. Don't acknowledge it. Don't think about it. It got worse. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, if you do have uh, mental health problems, uh, there's uh, Mind UK, uh, BLIAM. Uh, I know a lot of... Um, trans like organizations oh sorry i'm trans focused i know of queer organizations that actually offer mental health um yeah. uh seminars for free uh, i know they're like two minutes late or left or i'll just keep an eye on it uh so um yeah if you do need help reach out um if you are in a very very bad place go to your gp um i am on medication i've been on medication for about a year now and it does help even if you don't necessarily it, there's no pride around it if you do need help yeah. reach out um uh so uh sometimes you just need a break and uh sometimes medication can give you the break that you need to stabilize and then get back to where you are before personally i had so much um internalized um taboo about mental health that i thought by reaching out i was going to be weak or i let my family down or i was disgraced or i was that person uh that tension seeker no it doesn't work that way you know there's there's structures in place specifically to help people with mental health issues mm. so there's no shame in just reaching out and making your life better yeah. and do you think I mean, your, your story is incredible and i just i feel so lucky to be in the space with you where you are now and where you've been i guess i there's a really curious question for me which is do you think that sense of pride or the resistance to seek help did that have any kind of gender attached to it for you um i probably came out as trans about two years ago mm -hmm. um so at the time i think i was just one of those power suits padded types um i i, I don't think it was necessarily linked to gender 
but mm. in hindsight most of my ideologies or internalized presentations were more masculine related mm. you just didn't want to show any signs of weakness mm. um and i do know a lot of um, men that don't really talk about their mental health issues or discuss them because you you kind of like forced to just have this external front of just control and dominance and everything's fine when actually sometimes it's some things aren't fine and it's okay to talk about them and did your well it's not did your how supportive was your family and the people around you in terms of you expressing your identity uh, I'm in my family home right now, so I probably have to be careful what I say. Uh, <laughs> sure. I would say that um, when you come from a Caribbean family, um, it's not necessarily something that uh, is necessarily understood. Um, and talking in general uh, for the trans community, uh, there are a lot of instances of um, people being, uh, sorry, I'm not sure if anyone about being made homeless and isolated from their gender identity, uh, which is why places like this is incredibly important. Safe spaces are everything, um, not necessarily for drinking and partying. Safe spaces is to actually have a conversation or um, to, in some way, to have people around you who understand you uncondition and unconditionally love you yeah. whilst your family may be adjusting or coming to terms with who you are. Uh, right now, I, I feel pretty blessed because I'm in my family home and I'm slowly growing facial hair and my parent family haven't asked me any questions. My voice is breaking and it's going deep and um, my, my aunt still asks me what I'm doing throughout my day. And yeah. you know, if I tell him I've done some sort something very, very trans, I'm like, well done. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, got there eventually, but it's yeah. a journey. I think someone explains it to me perfectly. He says, you've been struggling with your sexuality and your gender for about I don't know say about a year depending on who you are like a year two years and you tell someone and then you have this expectation that that person's going to catch up to where you are right now in a couple of seconds mm -hmm. sometimes yeah. it doesn't take time uh, sometimes they need time in order to get go for the same journey that you've gone through mm -hmm. um I, I'm, I'm not condoning transphobia or homophobia I'm not but um I, uh, sometimes giving people time isn't the worst thing. It's frustrating, I hear you. It's also not easy when you're trying to work out who the hell you are. <laughs> you have to try and make someone else feel better about it as well. You're like, I'm in pain. Oh, there you go. <laughs> You'll get there. You're like, I'm struggling myself. Um, yeah. So I hear you. But yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I feel blessed, but I know so many others who are not. Yeah, I do a lot of work and hate crime. It's, it's pretty gnarly out there. And you approach, from, from the times I've met you, you approach things with such generosity. There's a real sense of the contact that you make with people is about meeting them where they are as well as where you are. And I think that's such a powerful message about giving people time to catch up. You might have been thinking about this for a year, so give them some space. We, Michael's been sending through a couple of questions from people, so I hope you don't mind me asking these because they're Fabulous questions. Do you think that your hedge fund experience was as accepting as it sounds, or was it just in comparison to the cult? Good question. Um, I'm thinking about going back into finance right now as a trans guy, so I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I'm doing a project right now uh, with a group of gender, um, it's called Gender Identity Network, and it's an insurance group of insurance companies, and they are trying to make sure 
uh, that um, non-binary, trans and um, gender-free people are represented, represented in offices. And I'm currently producing and directing that project right now, and that might be launching in, um, in June. Um, so these organizations are making an active effort in order to improve gender identity. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an organization called Transnicity I'm working very, very close with. So th- the office and corporate types, uh, middle-aged white balding men are doing their best. They are, they are trying. Um, I'm not going to say that it's perfect and you don't have constant instances of homophobia and transphobia in offices because it does exist and it will exist for a while. But I feel as if the powers that be are trying. I could be optimistic, yeah. but yeah. But I know for big organizations like KPNG, say for example, they actually have internalized trans representatives, and that's been mm. there for about five years now. Mm. So it's 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 more progressive than I thought. Mm. As a as a middle-aged balding white guy, Sorry. I'm <laughs> I embrace it. I embrace all that I can do to try and be different. One of the bits of learning I've been doing recently is is around the concept of allyship. And when I was I was reading Leila Saad's book on white supremacy, which is just incredible. And one of the things that really stood out for me was ally isn't something you can self-identify as. Someone else has to call you an ally because you have done something that's worthy of being an ally. How would you like people to express their allyship in helping all of these amazing bits of work that you're doing what can we do to earn the badge of ally um luckily one of my co-workers at transactual has really helped me out with this one so on uh, transactual uk there's actually a resource on our website um centered around allyship so uh, let me just quickly find it so I don't sort of just make this up as I go along. Um, but depending on how much time that you actually have, if you have five minutes, um, you can mm-hmm. potentially uh, uh, you can follow a trans-led organisation, sort of um, educating yourself on what's happening. Um, if you have a lot more time, you can write to an MP um, about a trans-related issue. Uh, sometimes just educating yourself as an individual and uh, speaking to other people in a forum like someone if someone misgenders someone uh, correct them politely it doesn't even need to be in the room like I I will maintain someone's gender if they're not in in the room the vicinity it's just like an act of respect Um, but yeah so Transactual UK uh, have a uh, an easy action resource which is on our Instagram social media platform and also on our website um, and yeah it kind of just it breaks down different things that you can do in your free time um, and so if you have five minutes or 15 minutes then it's there or volunteering as well if you want to come volunteer at Transactual we do have I think we have about 100 volunteers right now so uh, and a lot of the work is done by volunteers all the, all the board the directors are volunteers uh, we a group of legal volunteers wrote a response on hate crime um, for us, and it was about 19 pages. And it was just beautifully written, and we submitted. And I was just like, I don't understand how you guys did that. You sorry, you people did that. Like I was just like, so, uh, or at the generosity and hard work of that group. Um, what does volunteering involve? So there's three different groups. There's um, media strategy group. There's leisure to strategy group, and there is um, healthcare. So healthcare, we are, have seminars on healthcare resources, trying to help trans people, um, teaching people, teaching trans people, non-binary people how to speak to their MPs. 
legislative group, we look at um, policy. So uh, we, I have a project right now, where I'm gonna have meetings with MPs, trying to have a strategic meeting with them. Mm -hmm. uh, we write responses on hate crime to the Law Commission. We res res respond to, uh, there's violence against women and girls, which is one of the ones we're working on. Um, and then there's like a toilets inquiries, which we're currently looking at as well. Uh, media, um, we help people create documentaries. Um, we have blogs, you can write a blog for us. Um, so there's a lot of different projects depending on what you're interested in, what your aspirations are. Um, so yeah. Thank you. Drop me a message if you have questions, basically. I'm, I'm quite open. Thank you. I know that Michael and Melis have sent uh, a link to the website as well in some of the joining instructions. So people definitely follow that. I've got two more questions from the group. I think they're linked. Um, as a person of colour and trans in an environment where you might feel as a minority, do you think you've had to make any compromises on identity or values? So like an example of locker room talk that you might regret or that you feel you didn't stand for? Um, I think when I first came out as um, a lesbian, you sort of, you always end up in a sort of state of maybe like toxic masculinity like it feels as if you're almost overcompensating, like, oh yeah, I'm a bit of a lad. I'm gonna go out and fight the girls. <laughs> <laughs> and then you look back at yourself, relating, like, what was that? Like, what was the point? You know, you, you were you were raised understanding what it's like to be a female minority, and there you are, sort of um, falling into the same misogynistic characteristics that you are supposed to avoid. Um, so I guess toxic masculinity is probably something which I see a lot of um, studs and um, baby trans, baby trans, <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm not saying it, uh, falling into it. Uh, so uh, compromising my identity, um, I think because just out of me personally, I went to private schools as a kid and there wasn't necessarily much black influence. Mm -hmm. So um, I had, I, there's been a lot of moments where I don't necessarily feel as if I'm in that much in touch with my black or my Caribbean identity. Like, who am I? I'm in an all white country. I mm -hmm. think someone mentioned earlier about identity and how it's, yeah. Oh, Kelsang said that. Yeah, it's just about identity and who you are. I have struggled with that, but I won't necessarily say. It actually, you know, it's probably been something more aggravated with the whole trans thing because mm. I do feel as if there is an intersectionality point. I talk about that quite frequently. Um, if you are in a situation where your 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 closer circle, your inner circle, or your family circle, and necessarily accept you for who you are, it kind of throws you out. Um, exploring groups that necessarily reflect you. Mm. Like when I first came out as queer, I would spend a lot of time in Soho. But you realize the music isn't quite what you're used to. The mm. culture isn't the same. The food isn't the same. And you do feel as if you almost have to um, divorce your cultural heritage in order to fit in, which yeah. is a shame. Um, but after doing some digging, <laughs> I realized that someone already thought about that years ago, yonks ago. Um, there's a lot of, I think, um, you know, queer Baroque um uh kind of there's there's, there's there's like every single there's a southeast asian um party night as well every single cultural group has their right. own socials and it's actually beautiful um for non-binary trans people there's pussy palace if you don't particularly want to drink um and it goes against your, your culture um there's misery party 
Um, if you like uh, books, Prime Black is like a book reading. Um, Pocket Dot as well does a lot of work in sober spaces where you can sort of sit there and get some henna and do some knitting. Like mm. everyone, oh yeah, Nadine, the one, um, one of my favorite people. Yeah, it's just, it, there's a lot of different spaces which, which have already been created in, in order for people to heal. Um, and I think it was um, Misery Party that actually has free therapy. One of the therapists came and gave everyone free therapy because it's all about making people feel space. So um, ironically, I think I'm probably closer to my blackness now, my black identity now than I was um, growing up. I think because I found people in the queer space that are very, very proud of being black. So you can kind of sort of explore that. What does that mean? Um, and I found people who are, who are like me and that's very, very empowering, I think. Um, I'm always in this kind of this conversation with the internal and the external world so our identity that we're shaping is also then meeting the other identities one of the things that I um the most powerful thing I came away with from doing the recreate space retreat was forgiving myself for all the times I felt like I wasn't living up to the expectations people projected on me and the image I had was a bit like being a jigsaw puzzle but someone had put the wrong lid on the box and expected it to look like this. And so there was something really powerful about going, oh, it's not just about my identity, it's about what people assume of my identity. I mean, just, there's another question from people around um, some of the times when you have felt like you've made real advances in establishing who you are and your identity. Like, do you think that there have been pivotal points where significant shifts have happened? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I kind of, I, I skipped through like the pains and the struggles I went through in order to get to this position. I don't really want to trigger anyone and I want the seminar to be about positivity. But um, I, I write for my blog and my my last blog was called Worthy of Love. And um, so uh, for me, I was, I used to work in Shiba, but as you know, um, and um, one person came in and um, they were the first person to actually uh, recognize that I was trans and mm -hmm. still kiss me for it. And that for me was just like a beautiful moment, but it was like raw acceptance. And I actually got this necklace when I was out in Camden with them and I carry it around with me all the time. I was here and I meditate with it as well. Um, this was uh, a sober event. I made this necklace at a queer sober event and the person that um, gave me the stuff to make it was trans. I didn't even know. Mm. So trans people can be so passable that you won't even know that they exist. So these are the two messages that I pretty much just carry around with me all day. Um, but it's uh, um, pivotal moments. I think um, when people realize who you are and they don't judge you for it, like I've, I've, I, I did a talk at the Department of Transport and I sat there willy-nilly as a trans man and then I didn't even know the Minister of Transport was on that call and he came out and he's just like I didn't realize how bad it was for trans people and I was just like <laughs> the Minister of Transport realized how bad it is I was like wow yeah. but that's the moment um I was I, I did a talk um uh I was on a panel panel uh, just like a round table at the mayor's office and the fact that they even let trans men in and we just talked about how it was, what it's like. That was a moment for me. Um, when um, 
my sister actually called me Rico and respected my pronouns for the first time. That was a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was on a Zoom call. I, 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 I actually got hired to, to uh, create a radio station, a black radio station hired a trans man to create their offering for uh, Black Lives Matter. And I was just like, why, why me? <laughs> you could hire anyone. Um, and um, I organized it all. And we got talk speakers such as Councillor Karen Vernon, um, Patrick, no, Councillor Karen Williams, Patrick Vernon, Diane Abbott, Lady Phil came along. So these are like prominent political people who came along and respected my pronouns. And I introduced myself as the black trans guy and non-battered violent. Yeah. And I'm, I was so used to feeling so scared and um, uh, persecuted, bordering on terrified that if I go into a professional space, the reason why I like being a freelancer is like, if I meet you, it doesn't go well, I never have to meet you again. <laughs> it's great. It just, you just walk into a room, it's like, oh, no, not working. You know, but if, when you're stuck in an office, you're there for what about? two three years the same old people all it takes is one homophobe and it's just because this, <laughs> this isn't great here um and i i think that sort of um it, it to be to have an, a group of people that um i knew were older and black um mm. and obviously very very strong-willed and strong-minded being so accepting mm. was just a massive win and another one um so uh, i did some reporting for rainbow um uh, Rainbow uh, News, Rainbow Films, um, and Rainbow Films, I still had PTSD when I went started working for them, and I, I learned how to do cameraman and camera skills because I couldn't really write in public, so I had to find a different way of earning a living, which meant that I could jump from people to people and not actually be in the same space. Um, so videography was great for me. Um, and the group of people, it was like a queer um, a video, videography training group. Um, and uh, they taught me how to use the camera. And I, um, I talked about my story, my PTSD story towards the end of it. But it meant when I was doing that project, I, I interviewed um, Neo Ten Y, uh, Lady Phil, Aaron McCarthy. Like they, the, the guy knew that I needed spaces to heal. So he stuck me in them. And I have so much respect for him for doing that. But um, uh, I did some recording uh, of the Black Lives Matter protests because I know a lot of like history of Black Lives Matter and I was talking about it. Um, and I, it was all black people. And what I've realized is now I've present like a guy and I sound like a guy, I've fallen into the, um, I potentially can get punched <laughs> part of the community. Cause guys, guys, can, you can punch another guy. And it's like, you know, boys would be boys. I grew up as a girl, no one was allowed to punch me and now they can. And it scares me a little bit. So <laughs> I was out and about and I was just like, oh. Um, uh, it's a brilliant story in the amateur. Yeah. I'm trying to remember who wrote it. Um, Oh, I can't remember his name. Uh, and he talks about that experience of going, suddenly this bloke came up to me in the street and was menacing and I didn't know what to do. Yeah, it's, it's the story me. of a trans guy who's training for a boxing match. It's an amazing story about his search for a masculine identity and actually how attractive that violence is. I just want, I know that we're, we're over Running time. out of time. Sorry, I would say there's one thing. Yeah, but, go for so, it. Um, and my uh, queer big sister, um, I was scared about having a uh, a sign that says Black Trans Lives Matter, 
Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I'm outing myself as trans because I'm passable. No one really knows. And um, she knew this. So she wrote a sign for me and brought me a trans flag. And then there's this photo of me in Parliament Square, surrounded by a sea of like black people who look slightly intimidating to me because I'm quite short. <laughs> I've got my flag there and I'm just like grinning like, uh, yeah, those are the moments that got me. So yeah, people, people Thank are you. wonderful. Do you know, I, I think you utterly embody this concept of be the change. And it's such a joy to have you here. I'm so grateful for sharing your story. Um, I know that we didn't get through all of the questions that were coming through, but the questions that we did get through were so beautifully put. So thank you to everyone. And thank you, Rico. It's just, yeah, I'm glad you're in the world doing what you do. And you... This next conversation is between Chloe Davies and Eduardo Gutierrez. It's taken from our workshop series, What's My Purpose? Eduardo is an Oxford graduate from Colombia with a passion for philosophy and peace building. Chloe is a proud bisexual woman, mother of two, activist, chef and entrepreneur. Her work sees her campaigning for inclusion and equality in social spaces, corporate organisations and the wider community. She heads up training and engagement for my G work, but also volunteers with UK Black Pride as an executive officer and is the community lead for the London Queer Fashion Show. We had the pleasure of listening to Chloe talk so honestly about her struggles with race, relationships and sexuality. This powerful conversation really exemplifies how our adversity as individuals can inspire our work and lead us to having a greater impact within our communities and the world. So in order to better understand these ideas and how they can be useful tools, uh, we have a guest with us today, a very special person. Her name is uh, Chloe Davis, and she has agreed to join our conversation today and share her story. So Chloe, welcome. <laughs> I'll have to unmute myself. Hello again, everyone. Um, it's really nice to be here and have some conversations. I've been seeing faces, and um, i just like to acknowledge Sandy and just say that we see you and you know that's totally cool and perfectly okay and thank you very much for being here in this space um yeah i i think i got a partner in crime for this bit um or this is the me talking about myself bit i'm 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 flying this is michael's like yes this is the me talking about myself bit. <laughs> um i you know i think the dynamic of what i was going to say is is completely changed and so um i think what i'm going to do if it's okay with you is kind of just revisit the conversation that i just had with eduardo just to sure kind of absolutely go ahead okay, i great. think it's, that's exactly um, what we need right now <laughs> perfect um so we were just kind of talking about the questions that you've gone through and you know what what has brought me here to 2020 uh, kind of very relevant to now for me um so i am refinding my 14 year old self at 14 um, I was pretty badass. I knew exactly who I was, what I wanted from life, fully channeling my creativity. Um, unfortunately, my uh, cousin, who was my best friend in the whole world, um, he took his life and it just made a fundamental knock in who I am. Um, and for lots of different reasons, I became silent. I internalized everything. I stopped talking about my pain. I stopped talking about how I was feeling. Um, I stopped kind of reaching out and engaging in any way other than just surviving. I was acting out 
um, I was acting out in school. My parents really didn't like me during that time. Um, and um, when I was 24, so 10 years later, um, my granddad on my mum's side uh, passed away and I ended up having a full mental and emotional breakdown. I was in hospital. Um, they tried to give me tablets, didn't necessarily work. But what did happen, I was working for um, an amazing organisation that said, maybe you should speak to someone. And actually, as part of our employee well-being, before we called it well-being, but in part of our employee benefits, um, you know, we can allow you to speak to a counsellor. So I did. Um, they said, you know, you can have six to 12 sessions. I had 13. Um, it's why I have 13 tattooed on my wrist, because you make your own luck. Um, and my therapist, Diane, was amazing because she, uh, what she did was to help me speak to myself, um, to not lie to myself, but to be really honest with myself and to just sit in my own space, in my own peace and listen, which uh, for so long when I've been silenced, I actually had forgotten how to listen to myself I would pretend and you know oh it's deal with something else and and, and not really do that um, and so along the way that wasn't my first I had another one four years later and that one was much much worse um, and I divorced my well no I didn't divorce myself I separated from my parents um, because sometimes you know the people that are the closest to us are also the ones that are the 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 ones that need the most work and so there was a real kind of balance between talking with my family but them actually seeing me my dad's my best friend in the whole world and um he would always say why do you need to go and speak to a stranger why can't you come and speak to me and i was like because you're kind of part of the problem and i actually don't I, if you if you do it if you help me you know he's like i know exactly what you need which was usually right but i need to kind of find that myself because i need to own it you know if someone else does it for you then you kind of you're like okay well you know dad's always thank you dad's always going to help me out dad's always going to help me out i actually needed to be an adult and and, and do it for myself so um it was really hard. I moved into my grandma's uh, for, for six weeks and um, we would, my parents would come and we would have a, an hour together for lunch and then I'd be like, okay, cool. It's nice to see you. And then we'd go. But we, I think it was great for all of us because what we did was it reestablished, you know, the parent-child relationship in my case, but it also allowed us to actually view each other as people. For me, it was probably one of the healthiest things that we've actually managed to do. And now when we talk to each other, we can really talk to each other without offence, without pain, or have those really hard time talks because we went on that journey together. Um, and so kind of in the beginning of this year, Going back to that 14 year old self part, I was in denial and still hiding her and still, you know, she's trying to find ways to tell me I'm, I'm here, I'm always here. And I just needed to hear her. So I, I went back to uh, therapy properly. Um, and I was searching for 18 months. I was searching for a therapist who identified in a very similar way to myself. So um, I'm not gonna say her name because she's, but she's, amazing um but my therapist is black and queer and i don't have to spend the first half an hour explaining my very lived experience 
I don't have to explain microaggressions. She gets them and sometimes she gets them before I've even finished explaining what it is that I'm talking about. So this hour that we have together is truly for the very first time, the most healing of spaces, even when I'm not actually sure what it is that I'm coming to therapy with, or I'm trying to fill the space with so much because I've got so much going on in my head. And she's like, okay, I'm just going to invite in, very much like you did, Eduardo, I'm just going to invite in a breath. I was like, <laughs> okay, hi. Um, because I, I'm always having that, I feel like I'm running out of time. I feel like I've got so much to say because I haven't said it for so long that I have to fill this space and kind of the, the pattern and the wave. Um, and so the last 10 months, whilst it has been really hard for me, you know, I've got two kids. They're amazing. Being in lockdown with two kids is really intense. Um, you know, because like I said, my parents have been my support network and we couldn't be together. We were in two separate bubbles. Um, I, uh, I work in, not only am I LGBT, but I work in the LGBT space and I volunteer in the LGBT space. So when you're fighting for your community and your day job and your gay job, my way of applying self-care has always been by finding and seeking comfort in and with my community. I'm normally doing a team meeting once a month with UK Black Pride or I'm seeing my friends or I'm actually going to events and, and engaging in community engagement. So I get my healing from other people, just like so many of us on the call. And to not be able to do that, especially when you're more marginalised, it has mm -hmm. truly been really, really challenging and, and quite traumatic. And then the additional layers on top of that case anyone didn't realize I'm black um, and I'm a woman so being in a Black Lives Matter movement that has ignited in ways that none of us would ever have imagined but also the violence that's faced to black people black LGBTQ plus people black trans um, women in particular it's it, it's been it's been hard to navigate uh, but also I forgot that I could ask for help and um, it, it was actually my therapist that said, you know, maybe talk to your parents. Cause I was like, you know, we can't go and see my parents. And I, ju I just want to see my mom. And they said, she said, well, why don't you actually ask your parents if they can come to you? Cause you've got two kids, so you can't, it's vulnerable households. My mom was just recovering from uh, breast cancer. Um, and so they did, we stood either side of the fence for, I think it was about six, seven minutes. They drove up like I live in Hertfordshire they live in uh, East London so they drove about an hour we were only together for six minutes the best six minutes I had three months into lockdown just to be able to say like okay I'm in this space we don't need to say anything but I just I just needed to see you um and so that that part of providing space for myself also being present in my space that's my 2020 that you know that's my knowing how much space I should be taking up and mm, actually absolutely. taking it up you know that that has been the really defining moment for me really being able to wow. see myself Chloe, um, I was, yeah. I was if, I, if I can ask you you yeah, thank you thank you for sharing this is this is amazing um thank you for opening up we, we were talking about relationships and you've mm -hmm. mentioned quite a lot you, you mentioned <laughs> I told like you 
No, no, no. It's, it's amazing. That's really cool. So you talked about your cousin, yeah. your 14-year-old self, your parents and your grandparents, your therapist. Uh, and then you mentioned the queer community as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've got tons of questions, but I was just going to ask you, um, is there one in particular or two or three, whatever, that you think are, were the most vital in your story? Or is it a very difficult question to ask? No, um, I think at the, they're all interconnected. So it's okay. all family for me. Mm-hmm. That's the strongest connection. Family, okay. You know, it's the it's the the relationship bonds to me are family. My community mm-hmm. are my family, mm-hmm. um, and the work that I do, I I I it resonates most when I create family around me. Mm-hmm. Um, so my my work colleagues at my G work, we are like a family. I have I work for two identical twins. It's like younger brothers because mm-hmm. I'm actually the eldest but they're like big brothers younger brothers you know from my UK black pride they're my chosen family they're so the family that oh, okay. saved my soul um so you, you, I, you, yeah you, you could say that you know, I mean you, you you mentioned the queer community as well so yeah. do you feel at home there like is that yeah. your family in a sense as well absolutely you know it's the it's the well, this is on two folds, because if you are LGBT or you are aware of the queer community, you know that we are, like many families, dysfunctional. Um, <laughs> and that we, are, that we are not all united and there's some work to be done, but that's family. Mm-hmm. That happens mm-hmm. with, it, with any family. Mm-hmm. Um, but the place where you are seen and, and where keeps you safe mm-hmm. and where actually recognises who you are and celebrates mm-hmm. that, absolutely you know there's 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 nothing like my my queer community you know in particular Mm -hmm. not only the black and brown queer community but our wider lgbtq community my friends are Mm -hmm. of all faces all races all spaces Mm -hmm. uh you know but those bonds that you build through family through friendship um those relationships they're the ones that are the most important for me I, I, anyway. I, I think quite a few of us relate to what you're saying <laughs> yeah um, we've we've been mapping ourselves into relationships and you've you've done a great job i was wondering the next uh, what we're talking about next is curiosity and you know the sort of ability that we have to remap reimagine ourselves you've gone through a lot and you've described a very powerful transformation process you did say there was a breakdown. You mentioned your body at one point, but I w- I'm curious, like, do you have something in particular that was like the alarm that set you up that said, or, or was there anything that allowed you to rethink yourself or to say, I can't go on in the same way that I'm going or I need. The first, I, yeah. The first time, yeah. no. The first time was my body basically said, I've been trying to talk to you and you're not listening. So now I'm going to make you listen. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what I then had, and like I said, with Diane was she allowed me or she gave me, she allowed me, but she gave me the skills to be able to listen to myself. So the second time that I, you know, that I had an episode, I knew it was coming. I know what it feels like. I know that my body, I, I talked about this the other day in a, in a video for MHFA. I get really overwhelmingly tired. I actually feel so detached from my body and I don't I, I don't want to move I don't want to do anything I you know I, I just kind of want to be in the cave and stay in the cave um, and so I can recognize when an episode is coming and what I've learned to do from that is how to how to better navigate through it because you can't 
realistically I can't stop them what I've learned is that they will come and they will always come but how do I navigate through that how do I do that safely how do I take care of myself as I'm going through an episode sometimes they are I actually need to stop Mm. other times I need to speak to someone you know sometimes it might actually be reading a book or doing something nice for myself is a way through that um like I said this week has been quite tough um and so I came to my parents for well I came the first night by myself and had an, a good night's sleep without a child invading the bed because broken sleep actually you know is, is a massive thing um and then I've you know I've had another day so that now I'm back in my whole world my kids are back here but I feel a little bit stronger and a little bit more at peace with myself to be able to do that um mm-hmm. if 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 you'd asked me this question eight years ago I wouldn't have had an answer I wouldn't have been able to articulate it mm-hmm. I would have been really stuck and said I have no idea and I'm and I have no idea how to help myself but first and foremost I have no idea how to ask for help I've, I've learned that from these experiences and not mm-hmm. being afraid um because that's that for me has been the biggest thing of you know wow. being afraid to ask for help especially when you are uh African <laughs> okay, this, is, this has been amazing thank you so much Thanks. really <laughs> thank you well done wow Great. um thank you Chloe ooh, yeah really really touching um yeah, we'll talk about remapping yourself. <laughs> um, right. So That's all for this episode of Self-Inquiry, but be sure to subscribe to hear more or check out our live program schedule and be part of the conversation. Send you a virtual hug from the team here. And even if you do nothing else today, remember to breathe, create space, stay curious.